David G. Hartwell, called an editor extraordinaire by Publishers Weekly, is one of science fiction's most experienced and influential editors. He's worked with many of the field's best authors and edited many award-winning works. He's the author of Age of Wonders, a nonfiction study of the science fiction field. Among his many anthologies are the best-selling World Treasury of Science Fiction and the World Fantasy Award winner The Dark Descent. He's the holder of a PhD in comparative literature from Columbia University, a winner of the Eaton Award, and has been nominated for the Hugo 24 times. Catherine Kramer co-edited the World Fantasy Award-winning anthology The Architecture of Fear and was the editor of its widely praised sequel Walls of Fear. With David Hartwell, she edited The Ascent of Wonder, a major anthology covering the early history and development of hard SF, quote-unquote, to which this volume, The Hard SF Renaissance, is a companion. Hartwell and Kramer have co-edited the annual Year's Best SF series. They live in Pleasantville, New York, with their son, Peter, and their daughter, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Welcome, both of you, to the Bibliophile, after all of that. <laughs> Thank you, Nigel. What makes you different from a regular editor? With science fiction, you have a crucial entanglement with the field, and there's a very much give and take with not merely the writers, but also the readers and the people who run conventions and so on. So Entanglement doesn't sound too positive. It's a science term. Uh, her father's a nuclear yeah, physicist. Yeah, my dad's a quantum. She's uh, <laughs> saying, uh, it, if I may rephrase it, is that participation in the field allows you to take different roles at different times. At one point in life, you may be an editor. At another point in life, you may be a writer. At another point in life, you may be a publisher of a small press magazine. Or you may remain simply a reader your entire life, but personally acquainted with people who are fulfilling many of these other roles. So uh, the common theme is the science yeah, fiction the community. And the uh, intense interest in what the genre does that separates it and makes it different from the rest of the body of literature. We were just talking about the fact that, that boundaries are something that you may not like, and yet it sounds to me what you've just said here, you've just lauded it. Mm -hmm. This is true. Uh, I am, in fact, a, a strong defender of genre boundaries because it allows a writer to have a certain distance from whatever is fashionable in contemporary writing, very useful for some writers. It gives them uh, a chance to uh, attain a certain perspective that other writers do not have. It also allows them to write in unfashionable styles. There are as you are well aware, a few fashionable styles that most fashionable mainstream writers use at any given moment in history. Science fiction and other genre writers may have other styles. Other without being Without being simply bad writers. Okay. Uh, they are simply different. Secondly, genre boundaries are useful for ambitious writers because one may transgress boundaries. <laughs> and in fact, if they do that... Then they become more interesting. If there are no boundaries, everything is one mud puddle. It's hard to be an individual in muddy waters. There's two basic positions about genre boundaries within the science fiction field, and the politics of this don't fall in any particular predictable way. There are some people like David and I who are very comfortable with the idea of genre boundaries and see them as something aesthetically useful. And there are other people who are deeply uncomfortable with them and feel that they are an impediment to whatever their self-expression is. Like Ray Bradbury, for um, example? Yeah, or uh, people
Well, you wouldn't expect, like Stanley Schmidt, who's the editor of Analog Science Fiction Magazine, one of the most hardcore science fiction magazines in the sense of being perceived as really at the core of the genre, he would really prefer that terms like hard science fiction would just go away and it could just be thought of as good fiction. We, as it happens, are people who think genre boundaries are really cool and interesting and useful aesthetic objects. Can you define that? Yes. The boundary that the science fiction genre has that is most easily comprehensible is that a science fiction text, most often, although not always, requires knowledge of science external to the story. There's real worth and value in the name science. Yes, it means mm -hmm. something. Secondly, and this is a more sophisticated critical argument, the words in science fiction mean in a different way than they mean in contemporary literature. For instance, in a science fiction book, when you are in New York in the year 2050, you are in a specific place in the future that implies that it has real rules and is a literal place. Whereas in a novel written by somebody who's not a science fiction writer, the number of the year is an arbitrary decision to simply distance it from the present, and it's a metaphor for the present human condition. In other words, you read the words metaphorically instead of literally. So um, in other words, the science fiction writer has to think very carefully about every single aspect of life so that none of it contradicts itself. Well, yeah. supposed to. Being yeah. a literal yeah. place, yeah. it, is a it literal all has place. to work, right? Yes. If you're on Mars, it is not an imaginative place. It is a real place in the physical universe, and it has scientific rules that have to apply. It has to make to sense to the reader who knows science. Yeah. And a good example of this is the juxtaposition between a Bradbury's Mars, which he does quite knowingly use as a metaphor for the human condition, not as a literal science fiction environment. So there is a reason but why there's Bradbury, a reason why can, Bradbury claim. can claim to be writing outside the genre boundaries. And you would suggest then that that's not kosher? I would suggest that he is a knowledgeable science fiction person. He grew up as a teenager and as a young adult writing fantasy and science fiction for pulp magazines later for the uh, popular slick magazines such as the Saturday Evening Post. His first books were published in science fiction lines as science fiction books or in fantasy by Arkham House, same publisher as H.P. Lovecraft. He was perfectly comfortable throughout most of his life being identified with a genre in spite of the fact that his popularity was much beyond the genre. Only in recent years, uh, recent decades, has he begun to say, oh well, you know, I'm just a writer. I'm a fantasist. It seems to me then what you're suggesting is that it's going to be a lot of sort of science engineering kind of nerds that would be really hardcore science fiction fans. Many, uh, many are. One of the things that is a kind of cliche in the science fiction field is if you go to an English department cocktail party in a university, you'll find maybe a few people who read science fiction for pleasure. And if you go to a physics department cocktail party, <laughs> you'll find maybe a couple who don't. <laughs> right. So there's a kind of...
pleasure reading in the science culture as opposed to the literary culture aspect of science fiction as well. The science culture doesn't take science fiction seriously in the way that they take a physical paper seriously. Right. It's entertainment. It's speculation. It's speculation involving the attitudes of science and scientists, not, as I say, invariably, characteristically. So getting back to your role then as a science fiction editor versus a regular editor, you're looking for a world that is believable and sort of scientifically rationalized to an extent that will satisfy this. The core audience. That's how you would evaluate best writing. When I am choosing stories as an anthology editor, I am using a different set of filters than when I am editing for a publisher and acquiring books. I would be lying to say that I wouldn't accept Ray Bradbury, even though he isn't writing according to the same parameters. I would accept Kurt Vonnegut, even though he was consciously and knowingly violating some of the things. In a heartbeat. He was one of my favorite writers. Well, uh, he's so funny, I, too. Yes. At, at the same time, I feel that I should have the skills to bring to both contemporary literature and to genre literature. I wanted to be a science fiction editor when I was a kid. I'm uh, one of the very few people I know who ever had that idea when they were a child. I didn't want to grow up to be a writer, I wanted to be an editor. And so I developed my skills so that I could be an editor. And isn't that a, just a gift? It seems that most people who are, quote, successful or contented with their lives are ones that have early on known exactly what they wanted to do and taken a great deal of pleasure in, in doing it and, and achieving it. Well, uh, it's certainly true in my case, although for a while I gave it up as impractical. I didn't think I would be able to actually achieve this goal. And so, uh, in terms of just not being able to make a living, I, I wouldn't be able to get a job and make a living because yeah. there were people who I was aware of who were uh, very competent and very knowledgeable and more involved uh, with the core people in the field than myself. I also found out when I was uh, late in high school how little it paid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, in fact, it was a low-status, low-paying career for most of its history. So I pursued graduate education, thinking that I would teach at university. During the course of the graduate education, I, through great good luck, met people in the publishing industry who found out that I was a very knowledgeable person about science fiction, and I got a job as a science fiction editor part-time while completing my doctorate. So it was a very easy decision for me at the end of my degree to just go into editing instead of going into teaching. Let's see if we can talk uh, more then about the uh, the line, the boundary, and what it is you're looking for. Are you looking for something that's completely out there that you would never have dreamt of? If something is completely out there and surprises me, I'm delighted. This is not an ordinary occurrence. It happens once every couple of years with a manuscript, and it happens more often when we're editing short fiction for reprint. Okay. When we're surveying many hundreds, perhaps even thousands of stories, a year's best anthology, we can come up with perhaps more originality in the fiction than I can find in a year of reading manuscripts for my publisher. What, the short story 
genre lends itself more to the being more story. out there? Well, one key element is that in his role as, as a book editor, he has to figure out how the publisher is going to sell, sell and distribute an X number of copies and how they're going to make money on this book and who's going to buy it and what the package should the look at. Filthy and all that sort of that commercial concerns. Yeah, which he's really quite excellent at, but we are liberated from that particular burden when we pick out short stories. There is a set formula. We deliver a book. We have to have a certain number of n recognizable names for the publisher. But other than that, we are free to do what we want. Now, what we set out to do was something that was recognizably science fiction and not something else. So we have set our own constraint. But yeah. it's not the jump through hoops and do P&Ls and take them to the president of the company kind of thing he, has he does um, as a book editor. Turning away customers, right? <laughs> <laughs> with anthologies, oh, yeah. we don't have to figure out how to make money. That's the that's the, our publisher's problem. Be because right? in effect, the yeah. way the book is going to make money is based on your reputation as a as the arbiter of taste. These people are experts in the field, yeah. and this is what they think. And so, hey, we better read this. And it has its black yeah. ink track record. Tell me if you can. You say that it doesn't occur that often. What was the biggest taker awayer of your breath? reading a short manuscript? Well, two or three years ago there was a short story based on some cutting-edge science about a religion that was carried by a virus. Now, this blew my socks off because it is good science. It is possible. It is not ordinary, everyday, proven scientific fact. It sounds like the cutting edge gene. Yes, well, yes, on the, on the cutting edge of research, it is possible that this viral transmission of ideas and emotional states is plausible. Not quite possible, but plausible. This was an exciting idea for me. There was another, eight or nine years ago now, which incorporated cutting edge research on brain chemistry and how we actually, in one interpretation, begin to do something before we decide to do it. In other words, all of our actions are not consciously controlled, but our consciousness is what makes up reasons after we start to do it. That sounds this, a bit like T.S. Eliot and, and a poem. There's this understanding before you even know why you understand it. That's true, but philosophically that removes free will. Perhaps. That's where it becomes complex and stimulating and interesting. Yeah. When we overlay words onto reality. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you think of yourself as a unitary being, then it removes free will. But there's all kinds of subroutines going on You're in your head doing all kinds of things that are not part of the, the you you think about. So I'm not really bothered by it in terms of a free will question, but it's a cool story. But it, but it will cause us to rethink our whole discussion of free will over the next few decades, philosophically. That's, again, a, just to define what you're looking for. If you That's can, a really big idea. If you can yeah. read an idea yeah. in, a sh in a short story or a manuscript that really gives you a different take on an old topic, mm -hmm. that would be another definition, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, the thing is that you know, good ideas are really prized and valued in science fiction, but a beautifully executed version of an old idea is also valued. Well, there really uh, aren't that many new ideas out there. Indeed. As science yeah. changes, I guess 
it gives us new ideas, to, uh, ways to look at old ideas as, Absolutely. as and circumstances that's, change. And indeed, that's one of the primary pleasures of science fiction. The writers tend to pick up new science and incorporate it into stories when they can figure out something about that new science that changes the meaning of an old story. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I read somewhere that Martin Amos used to read the tabloids to get ideas. So, are you saying that science fiction writers read science journals? Some of them do. Some of them do. Some of them talk to scientists for pleasure. Some of them are scientists. And some of them are simply cultural magpies, picking up ideas from everywhere. Philip K. Dick would see the idea that your car might talk to you. Yeah, as an advertisement yes, on as, your windshield. Yes, well, as something that was very ambiguous and philosophically complex. <laughs> yeah. Now we know that actually there, there is something to that. <laughs> it's not just a gadget. We also know that we don't want our cars to tell us to lock the door. That's right. <laughs> I always remember this. This would have been about 15 years ago. I remember I rented a, I don't know, I think it was a New Yorker, and we were at a wedding out west, and uh, your door is ajar. Your <laughs> door <laughs> is ajar. <laughs> yep, that's a Philip K. Dick moment. <laughs> You want to say, shut up, car. <laughs> That's right. I know it's a jar. <laughs> well, I used to uh, be the assistant to Virginia Kidd, um, who was a science fiction literary agent and was the ex-wife of the science fiction writer James Blish, and her grandson had totaled her car by running into a tree, and she said to him, and remember, the first thing you always do is turn off the ignition when you've had a car accident. And he said, I turned, it off. I turned it off so that darn woman would shut up. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that, and I'm speaking with David Hartwell and his uh, partner Catherine Kramer, both acknowledged experts in the science fiction writing sphere. This conversation is uh, reminding me of a movie I've just recently watched called Moon. The movie deals with clones and how humans are treating clones as if they have no rights whatsoever. Mm -hmm. The only thing that has any compassion for these clones is a computer that's being programmed to care for them, mm -hmm. which is sort of a reverse of the, the, you know, my typical sense of science fiction is these evil machines turning against humans. Is that a, a sort of accurate description of a large percentage of science fiction? Science fiction has generally been technologically optimistic. It's not Armageddon. That there aren't, yes, that there aren't evil machines anywhere, but characteristically machines are useful in science fiction, yeah. not uh, inimical. Okay. Uh, in good they're science tools. fiction, yeah, they're tools. They yeah. also break down. <laughs> well, the other thing is there's a big difference between media science fiction and print science fiction in terms of its attitude towards machines. Oh, I yeah. Mean, media uh, science fiction is... is, is, is media meaning TV and movies. TV, TV and movies, and, movies okay. and you know, games and internet things and so on tend to be much more closely related to horror movies. Oh. Um, and there's a lot less of that in, uh, <coughs> in print science fiction. Yeah, on one of the board meetings of the Science Fiction Museum, I remember Jeff Bezos from uh, Amazon, who was also on the board of advisors. And originally. a sci-fi fan, I Yes, assume. indeed, saying that 
you know, the, the museum was really good, but what it needed was more of the bright, optimistic future of science fiction. It had covered the dark, threatening future really well. <laughs> what is one of the most exciting possibilities in our lifetime, and that would be if aliens visited this Earth. It would be akin to Christopher Columbus discovering the New World. It seems to me that that's going to happen at some point, and it's going to blow our, to use that overused term, our mind in the sense that it'll, it'll rejig the whole human race away from sort of nations to being unify human beings because we're defined now as different from something else. Well, there's a lot, there's wow. lots and lots of science fiction that takes lot that takes lots and lots of different takes on that, and it's a real central theme. My master's degree is in American studies, and so I tend in the direction of viewing that that kind of stuff as metaphors for what happened in the colonization of, of, of the Americas and Australia and so on. It's very difficult for writers to get outside that framework. So I'd say 90% of that is, is us processing the, the, the colonization experience, and then maybe 10% of that actually has to do with what might really happen. My skepticism about aliens is if we ever did meet aliens and they were comprehensible enough to communicate with us, they would probably want to convert us to their religion. <laughs> the, really yeah, seriously. If they're stronger than us, really seriously. they might annihilate yeah. us, and if we're stronger well, than them, well we they might, might annihilate they them. They might start by burning all our churches. Right. I think the, 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 more, the more pure science fiction scenario is, uh, quote, the exploration of space, that we go out and discover things, whether we discover aliens or discover marvelous astronomical objects or mysterious incomprehensible beings or new resources new resources whatever immense riches immense danger that's the kind of global positive optimistic trope of science fiction you don't have to just stay home and it's know. one that NASA would probably buy into big time well NASA's yeah. a strange entity when, when science fiction wrote about the possibility of space travel they weren't really thinking of it as PR and unfortunately you know NASA has been in large part used as a PR entity by the U.S. government. Well, they need PR because they're spending huge amounts of money. But on the flip yes. side, it's, yeah. it's, it's about as an exciting an, an experiment yeah. as humans can undertake. Well, it's a better kind of PR than let's have a war and distract everyone. Unfortunately, yeah. NASA has a lot more to do with, publi uh, with public relations than the kind of altruistic thinking one might have, one might have come up with in a science fiction yeah. novel until NASA happened in, in the real world, until governmental space programs happened in the real world, science fiction mostly imagined space travel as a corporate endeavor, not a national endeavor. It was Kennedy that fired everyone up about beating the Russians to the moon. I mean, that became true. pretty nationalistic. True. And, mm -hmm. of course, and of course, the Russians responded by having a nationalistic program of their own. And now yeah, we have... better than having a nuclear war. You know, a, Chine <laughs> a Chinese space program and an Indian space program and yeah. a Japanese space program. And, yeah. you know, you show what a, a big player you are by having a space program. Yeah, yeah, it's, it gives you street cred uh, just like having a nuclear yeah, power. That's yeah. exactly right. And I'd rather it be a space program than nuclear power. Yeah. Uh, well, nuclear weaponry, actually, because I am not entirely opposed to nuclear no, power. No, no. <laughs> I'm speaking with David Hartwell and uh, Catherine Kramer, who are both uh, renowned experts in the field of science fiction editing and writing. 
I'm going to get right back to my focus, and that is your role as editors of science fiction. Have we exhausted well, the I differences? Think, no, I think of myself as a kind of revisionist historian, and I think that I'm rather good at it, which is that when you put together an anthology that documents what happened, you get to decide what happened. The winners write yes. history. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well... You it, get to impose a pattern on history. If you're doing literary history, just the same. Recently, a review copy of a new critical book came out. You know, it was one of the, a book of essays about various different topics, and I was kind of surprised to find that our anthologies, Dave and I, were jointly being credited with having decided the whole trajectory of science fiction since 1992. Now, I wouldn't make that argument, but I was pretty surprised that someone would do it. But essentially, this, what he was saying is that by saying, "This is what science fiction, hard science fiction is. This is what space opera is." and these are what the stories are that are best for this year, that we had had a very large influence on the general trajectory of the field. But that, that's no different than, than an editor of any kind of anthology. Well, it depends on what you're trying to do with an anthology. A lot of people don't set out with an agenda, they set out with a clever marketing hook. Or oh, they don't yeah. have a long-term coherent plan for the direction they're, they're yeah. trying to go. However, I, to turn this into a, a, uh, an analogy with, with literature in the 20th century and beyond, the best anthologists do have this kind of agenda. They uh, do, that's what I'm saying. They, that This doesn't necessarily yeah. differentiate you from, from other anthologists. There are a small number of anthologists who have agendas, and the majority of people who do anthologies, either they have a very specific little thing they're trying to do with one book, or... So, sorry, what separates you is that you have an agenda? Yeah. And no. what is that agenda? Well, I had particular ideas about how hard science fiction worked. Before we did The Ascent of Wonder, hard science fiction had sort of degenerated to the way that Bane books published things, or rather the perception of the covers of Bane books, which was men so killing things with machines. You what know. she is talking about, if we can back up a little bit, is that we decided to do this anthology it's the, pr the, predecessor, to the predecessor to that. Mm -hmm. And this one's called wonder. The Hard SF Renaissance. Yes, the, the predecessor, predecessor was, was The Ascent of Wonder. And when did that one come out? Uh, it 94, came out 90, 95. Yeah. And this one came 90s, out when? 2001, 2002. Okay. What we had discovered in our own discussions of hard science fiction and the use of science in science fiction was that the term hard science fiction was applied variously to a great variety of fiction and that the people who were identifying themselves as hard science fiction writers and or hard science fiction readers were not in agreement about the nature of the fiction they were reading. In fact, there was radical disagreement. J.G. So Ballard said that he considered himself one of the leading hard science fiction writers of his generation. Which, from some perspective, Which, is nuts, but we entertain But in fact, he had a coherent argument to back up that statement. And so we felt that everybody who had a coherent argument to back up their point of view should be represented. As long as it agreed with yours? No. Uh, we were representing you know, the we whole were, We were trying to represent the whole spread of the discourse 
so that we could, as we once said in public, so that we could unsolve the problem of hard science fiction. So we, and so we could define what the game was. Because the game, as played, had sort of degenerated to something that was uh, had blended in with military science fiction, which I think is a very different thing by the mid, mid-90s, or by about 1990. Yeah, the, world, the worldwide perception of, of, of hard science fiction was uh, that American militarist stuff. Right, and blowing each other out of yeah, Star Wars. Right, and yeah. Yes, and uh, stuff like that. And we, we wanted to fix, <laughs> we wanted to f- correct that. You wanted to get viruses yeah. in there and religion and things like well, that. We, we oh, absolutely. I, I Bio, biology, biotechnology. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I am absolutely. the daughter of a nuclear physicist um, who later became a science fiction writer, and I spent my childhood around physicists, and I sort of felt I knew what hard science fiction was and yeah. what physics culture was, and that. The militarist stuff was really a very separate, different thing. It had more to do with space opera than with hard science fiction. You know what's funny from an outsider's point of view is there seems to be vehement defenses of various definitions of what science fiction is and isn't, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think in itself probably is an important definer of this whole area these vehement beliefs or these strongly held they strongly, ideas. They are strongly held ideas, they are strongly held aesthetic positions, and, and they contradict. But the other key thing is that these people are arguing with each other. Yes. That the yeah. arguing with each other is a key thing, rather than them being and outside. Off. Whereas someone yes. like me would say, I really could not care less what you call it, <laughs> as long as I'm turning the pages and I'm stimulated, I get some new ideas and I enjoy some phrases, Mm-hmm. I, I precisely right. As I said r- early on in the discussion, I became consciously and by decision a defender of genre and genre boundaries so that this conflict could take place within the genre. It sounds to me very energizing and positive, too. Well, it's a, that it's that a, is the way we see it. Yeah, in a way, it's like we're building the sets for the theater and setting everything in place so the, the play can take place. So you as the reader could care less how we went about building the sets, <laughs> but just that the play is good. The, you know, the irony, of course, is that something that's, that's really original is going to bust up any of your ideas about genre anyway. And that's fine. I was going to say, it is going to modify and revise. Well, we actually want that. <laughs> and that, in fact, is how science works. It's true until it's proven not true. Right. Yes. A new hypothesis is stimulating. It may or may not prove true, but it is stimulating. What about graphic novels? They seem to have really thrown, what? I'd say they've thrown the genre for a loop, but they've certainly increased readership. Well, they have their own readership. I mean, the thing is, the comics field has an intersection with science fiction, and one of the key figures in this is Neil Gaiman, and one of his roles was to show, you know, essentially that comics could be good literature, and then later on that that comic writers who 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 write good comics can also write good novels. I have to say, I could probably, if I had all my fingers and toes to count with, I would run out of graphic novels I've read before I ran out of digits. I personally don't need the pictures. Other people feel differently. There's an audience for this. I, I don't like the that. pictures. They interfere with my imagination. I feel that the graphic science fiction project, whether it is novel length or serialized or comic, uh, in the old sense of the comic book, is an interesting aesthetic enterprise, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. 
A science fiction film is a different aesthetic object than a science fiction novel. It follows different rules. It can be a really good film and really mediocre science fiction. A great yeah. science fiction yeah. novel can turn yeah. into a horrific uh, movie. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of different aesthetic possibilities about how text and graphics can be united, and I don't want to say that they shouldn't be, but the comics I think of as a very conservative aesthetic form, and so the kind of because it was a very codified commercial entity, and so trying to make an avant-garde art form out of such an aesthetically conservative entity by merging it with print science fiction seems to me a bit of a dubious project. Some brilliant people have worked in this area and probably done very good work, but if I was setting out to do something really wild, that's not how I would go about it. You'd stick to yeah. the words. So I wouldn't necessarily stick to the words, but when you're starting with an, entry, with an entity with a very conservative distribution system like comics has, and very... Uh, By conservative, you mean through the newsstand? Yeah, of, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's about as brutally commercial a setup as, as you could contrive of. That's not where I would go looking for my avant-garde. I'm more interested in the graphic novel outside of science fiction. There are, there are some very fine graphic novels yeah. outside of science fiction. They have, they have no particular that relevance to genre at all, yeah. and I can understand the use of both text and imagery mm -hmm. to talk about growing up as a gay woman in a small town in Pennsylvania. Well, it also it's a huge you know, new audience too, isn't there? Yeah. Kids and you know this generation yeah. that grew up with comics mm -hmm. and now they want to continue that with more adult topics. Well, there's the genre of the graphic novel and then there's the marketing category. Now, somewhere in this room, we actually have some some weird uh, 1960s uh, comics, which is, again, a yeah. whole other area. In uh, yeah, the underground comics. The underground I was a great fan of underground comics. Stuff. You mean Crumb? Yeah, well, Crumb and Gilbert Shelton and, and uh, the guys who grew out of Mad Magazine yeah. and became yeah, wild. No, I mean, yeah. They were sort of mixed in with the poetry, but you know, for, for the same reason he would say he'd more, be more interested in a graphic novel outside the field than inside, it's like he'd be more interested in general poetry than science fiction poetry. Just in closing then, it was very interesting to hear you talk about the, the religion virus, the belief gene. Are there any other breakout or breaking science stories or cutting-edge science that's going to burgeon in the, in the coming the coming years? That's the first question. The second one is kind of a hackneyed question, but it's one I think that every collector is interested in, and that is, who should we collect? Aside from giving the answer, who you like to read, perhaps we could uh, get who you like to read and who you think is, uh, is really going to go places. I think the single best writer, simply aesthetically, in the science fiction field right now is Gene Wolfe. By any standard, a first-class writer. And he's been producing, I think, the most significant body of work over the last 40 to 50 years in science fiction, both in novel length and in short fiction. He's going to stand the test of time. I think he's going to stand the test of time. We are fortunate in the science fiction field to have somebody like Jack Vance, still alive in his 90s, <laughs> just apparently about to publish his autobiography. Only a couple of weeks ago, Jack Vance was the subject of a, an essay in the New York Times magazine about how he was an unrecognized, important American writer. I think that's absolutely true. I think 
his best works are equal to the best works of Ray Bradbury or anybody else who has come out of the genre. They are significant, they are uniquely individual, as Bradbury's works are individual. I think that there are many younger writers who are doing stimulating and interesting things and could well develop into major figures. There are some people like Jonathan Lethem who has started out in science fiction, has moved away from science fiction, but has not rejected science fiction. Yeah. Uh, Michael Chabon, who started outside of science fiction, who moved sort of into science fiction and sort of into fantasy. Both these people read science fiction seriously and liked it when they were growing up. I knew Jonathan when he was a volunteer worker for the Philip K. Dick Society uh, before he ever published his first book. There's a kind of body of work that's taking place in, uh, at least in American literature and, and to a certain extent Canadian, by people who move in and out of genre comfortably and know what they are doing, know when they are writing in genre and when they are not. What about the themes that we were talking about earlier? One of the people who is most focused on themes, who moves in and out, but, but not in and out of science fiction, but in and out of fiction, is Ruth Sterling. And, you know, he is sort of done currently kind of a, a futurist design guru, and then every once in a while we'll slide over and write a, book and write a bit of science fiction. They lend each other to themselves very well, yeah, obviously. Yeah, and I, I think that he is a very very interesting writer to, to follow. Bruce, of course, and William Gibson came up together uh, out of the same writing workshop yeah. in Texas. Uh, Gibson is a fine writer. Sterling is a fine writer. Uh, I think both of them are producing important major bodies of work. What about, um, what about the themes? Bruce's theme is an environmental theme, mostly. Really, if people don't get it, this will be the end, and an extinction isn't a possible outcome. And he just keeps trying another way to get at this theme in another way with his very quirky southern boy kind of, kind of way of doing it, but I think he has a very strongly coherent theme in that respect. He is also a citizen of the world. He has traveled worldwide and talked to people in many, many cultures, and he brings a kind of very broad perspective to his fiction mm -hmm. that is rare in anybody's fiction. <laughs> he wrote a story, a surprising, striking science fiction story in the early 90s called We Think Differently, which was about a suicide bomber coming to annihilate a public figure. And it was the first time I myself had experienced the uh, what later became your ordinary everyday Arab terrorist <laughs> about how no no we don't think of it that way we think differently we, we think that it's it's good to do this we think that it is virtuous it is the right thing to do it is a reasonable thing to do it's a way to get to heaven <laughs> yeah it was presented from the point of view of the suicide bomb in terms of collecting there's one particular issue that I you know that I wish I didn't have to bring up but in as publishing experiences various difficulties. Some publishers are experimenting with publishing books that strongly resemble bound galleys in one way or another. So there are books that I think are not collectible, not because of the name of the author or because of the con contents of the work. These may be extremely fine, but because it looks so disposable and it's so poorly produced. And so there's a, there's a problem right now in terms of books being published that 
in terms of just plain production values as publishing struggled to figure out how to survive. The other thing is that over the course of many decades, the books that hold their value and increase their value most reliably are the trade editions from commercial publishers. Not limited editions, they are not specialty press editions. They're the ones that are yes. sent to bookstores for sale and they live or die according to that. Well, thanks very much for your uh, reflections on what differentiates science fiction editors from the regular folk <laughs> and, and on themes. Yeah. And I suppose, if I may add one final comment on differentiation, the only real difference between a good science fiction editor and a good mainstream editor is that a good science fiction editor knows the science fiction genre codes as well as the mainstream ones. And most good mainstream editors do not. Which begs the question, what are those codes? But <laughs> well, as I say, the, the, the way words work literally in science fiction. Okay, that's the, the main, that's the which main. is what we started with. Okay. If you're going to edit a manuscript, you have to know which words the author is using literally and which only metaphorically. And we are speaking of editors who edit words. Yes, we're speaking of people who actually edit, <laughs> as opposed to acquire. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, David Hartwell and uh, Catherine Kramer have edited the hard SF Renaissance, and prior to that, The Ascent of Wonder, which stand as... We kind of got to define what hard SF was for about 10 years. Right. I'm not sure how, how much longer we'll hold, our view will hold out. Uh, thanks again.